Hi everyone, I'm Josh, and this is The Emerald, Currents and Trends Through a Mythic Lens, the podcast where we explore an ever-changing world and our lives in it through the lens of myth, story, and imagination. The Emerald, all that's happening on this green jewel in space. Where do music and poetry come from? Cultures have different answers to this question, where music and poetry come from. But in many cultures, it's seen as this form of divine inspiration. And the role of the person who's fortunate enough to be able to receive this fountain of inspiration, their role is to sing back in praise of that fountain, you could say. And in singing back the senses that they uplift the people around them, the culture around them, the world at large, perhaps, even the natural environment of the places they inhabit. So the role of the bard, right, as it's known in the Celtic traditions, the bard who receives from this fount of divine inspiration and then sings back to the world and through their song and verse and poetry is able not only to uplift the people around them, but also to animate the the land and invigorate the spiritual energies of place, the energies of the plants and streams and rocks and great trees and oceans even. Through their song, they're able to reinvigorate this animate world. The role of the bard has been very, very key in so many different cultures. The one who keeps the stories and sings and through their song provides a portal, right, so that all might feel touched by this divine inspiration. And this type of inspiration is so critical in times like these. It's so necessary in times like these. Because, you know, in in most spiritual traditions around the world, they say that that one of the things that gets in the way of human beings being able to feel fully connected and fully present is, you know, this, this kind of pesky mind thing that gets in our way with all kinds of thoughts and distractions. And one thought leads to another, and that thought leads to another. And pretty soon, we've forgot to notice the singing of the nightingales right? We've forgotten to notice the singing of the nightingales. And in these times, it's like that thought generating machine is like on overdrive, right? Because we're exposed to so much news and everybody's got opinions about what's going on and what we should do. And we want to stay informed, but we don't necessarily want to be over-informed or misinformed. And how do you draw that line between over-informed and misinformed, right? It's a difficult thing to do. So in times like these, I feel that to reconnect ourselves to the force of poetry, to this fount of inspiration, and when I say music and poetry, I mean because these two things have always been very, very linked. There wasn't, you know, for a very, very long time in many, many cultures, there wasn't a sense of poetry as distinct from music because verse, poetic verse is incanted, it's sung, it's chanted. It's a direct animate link between the singer and the cosmos. 
So in times like these, I feel that it's even more vital to reconnect to this fountain, this fountain of inspiration. Because it's not only a matter of like, hey, let, let's listen to some nice stories, as I was saying in the, the first of our storytelling sessions, you know, we, we tend to call it what we call it escapism in this culture, right? Like we're going to escape by listening to some nice stories. Well, poetry and story and verse and song are not, the good ones anyway, <laughs> are not intended for us to escape. They're intended to transport us, right? into this deeper state of consciousness where we become more present and more aware, more attuned, recalibrated, right? Have you ever left a good storytelling session feeling recalibrated? Like, oh, I remember my place in the world and I remember what it's like to have a peaceful mind and a calm heart, right? That's what story and poetry and verse are meant to do. They transport us into a timeless place right? So when a story says once upon a time, it's speaking of the timeless place that story transports us. And in taking us to that timeless place, we're then much more able to, when we return to the world, find presence, presence being. Presence of consciousness, you know, let the thought machine go a little bit and simply be with what is. So there's a temple that I've been to um, several times in India. I've been there three times. And it's in the city of Vrindavan, which is the holy city of Krishna, the Krishna tradition, the bhakti lineage. And this temple, you take off your shoes. And when you step across the threshold of this temple, it's like stepping into another time and place. And many temples are like that in India. This one has a particular quality to it. The ground there is this really fine silvery powder. It's sand, but it's, it's, it's as fine as powder. And it's flecked with mica. So the whole effect is that this entire temple grounds that you're walking through, it's like walking in this shimmering powder. And you're barefoot, right? You take off your shoes and you step across the threshold. And the first thing you feel is your feet in this, in this cool silvery powder. And the temple priests there... Um, they shave their heads and they wear these big mala necklaces, but the beads are like that big. The beads are like fist size. So they have these like big necklaces and their heads are totally shaved and they cover their heads and faces entirely with this silvery powder, right? So you're in this kind of strange world of walking on silvery powder with these figures that are themselves like covered in the silvery powder. And that temple has these trees. It has these gnarled tree branches that are in the shape of, the shapes of the tree branches tell the story of Krishna's childhood naturally through their shape. So there's uh, a shape that forms a swing, which is invoking the swing where Radha used to dance. And there's a, a shape that invokes uh, um, various stories throughout Krishna's life, right? So there's a shape of a tree, a shape of a limb of a tree that invokes um, Krishna playing his flute. And so the shapes of the trees are the stories, right? The trees are the stories. <laughs> and that's going to come into play a little bit later on today. 
And this temple happens to be where one of the great musical traditions of India of Drupad singing. It's like the heart center for that type of singing. Uh, this type of singing flourished there, and it, a lineage that came through a singer, a bard, a poet named Haridas, who um, lived about 500 years ago. And Haridas, one of his primary students, was a singer named Tansen. And Tansen was a very powerful singer. And the role of a singer at this time was considered to be a very powerful role. And he was discovered when he was a child, he was out in the forest and he used to imitate all the animal calls. So one time there was an expedition of people from the king's court and they were out in the forest and they became terrified because they heard the call of a lion. And they went and searched the bushes for this lion and all they could find was this little scamp, right? <laughs> Tanzan. But one of the people from the court, they were about to, you know, box his ears and send him on his way or whatever they did back then. But one of the people from the court recognized that this kid had incredible vocal skill. So they took him to the court to, to uh, train. And he trained under various teachers. And one of the teachers was Haridas. So as we're walking through this temple, it's, you know, walking into a place where this legendary musician, Tanzan, had spent many years singing. And at the temple, people are singing and they're singing Drupad music and it's echoing through the Mughal architecture of the temple and there's this fine silver powdery sand and there's little golden bees crawling all around on the, on the silver sand. The thought that came to my mind was, you know, the bees weren't flying for some reason. All the bees were crawling around on the silvery sand. And the thought that came to my mind is even the bees are humbled by the sweetness of the music, by the sweetness of the divine one. Even the bees are humbled by his sweetness. So Tanzan, the musician, was taken to the court of Akbar to become the court musician in the 16th century. And there were some people who were very jealous of Tanzan. Some ministers of Akbar became very jealous of Tanzan because he, with his incredible voice and his incredible singing ability and his ability to invoke, had you know, gained the favor of the emperor. He was one of the emperor's favorites. And so, you know, as shady ministers do, they started to get the uh, ear of the emperor. And, um, well, you know, Tanzan isn't that great of a singer. I've heard there are much greater out there. And my king, if you really want to test how great of a singer Tanzan is, if you really want to test how great of a singer Tanzan is, then you have to make him sing the Deepak Rag, the Deepak Rag. So Deepam, Deepa, right, is this Sanskrit word that relates to illumination, but specifically the illumination that comes from fire. And this song, this raga, was said to be so powerful that if a skilled singer were to sing it, not only could they light all the lamps, all the candles around them, but they themselves potentially could be harmed by the fire of the song they could be harmed by the fire of the song. 
And the emperor didn't know this. He was just going off the words of his ministers and they were telling him that, oh, if you really want to test Tanzan out and see if he's a good singer, then make him sing this song. And Tanzan didn't feel that he could say no to the emperor. He said, yes, I will sing the, I will sing the Deepak Rag. So he prepared to sing it. And he also at the same time um, went to some of his students, his senior students, and he said, the only way that I'm going to survive this is if you sit outside the palace gates and simultaneously sing the Meg Rag, which is the rag that brings the mists and the clouds and the rain. The song that brings the mists, the clouds, the rain. Because song is a living force and it interacts with nature. So Tanzan sat in the court and he took out his sitar and he began to play the Deepak Rag. And you can hear, I mean, you know, you can hear people singing the Deepak Rag. You can find recordings of it and you can find many, many recordings of the Meg Rag. Anytime it seems like it's going to rain here in New Mexico, I put on the Meg Rag and hope that it rains. Tanzan, with his mighty voice, began to sing the Deepak Rag and his voice became itself this spirit of illumination of, of fire and all the lamps in the palace lit with the power of his voice and he started to burn inside and still he sang and he started to feel that his body would be reduced to ashes and still he sang and the lamps blazed brighter than ever in the palace and at last when he couldn't take it anymore he rose up from his seat at akbar's feet and he ran from the temple, and just as he ran outside, the thunderclaps brought a cooling rain that his students had called by singing the Megrog. And he ran to them, and they caught him in their arms, and they took him to his bed where he burned with fever for a week after singing the Raga of Fire. When I was a boy and we went to India when I was 13 years old, we had a family friend who was a little bit older than me. And he said, oh yeah, you know, I have a friend who is a very proficient musician and he only sang the Deepak Rag once and he did it while sitting in a freezing cold stream. And still when he got out of the stream, he had blisters on his body, right? So this is a little challenge for our Western mind, right? Do we believe that? Does our mental mind get involved and say, did he really do that? Were there really blisters on his body? Was it really because of the song he sang? And maybe for today, we can just let ourselves be transported a little bit and understand the place that poetry and song serves, the place it serves for people. Yeah, that deeply, holy, special place that poetry and song serve. The vision of the poet-singer, the the bard as one who invokes the forces of nature and the forces of nature respond to them is something that you'll find everywhere. You'll find it absolutely everywhere. And in the, in the Western traditions, of course, you'll find it in the figure of Orpheus, who has come back to us in so many different forms throughout history. If he lived, you know, he lived probably about 4,000 years ago. But all through history, you find Orpheus. He seems to reappear where you least expect him. There are ballets named after him. There's a Brazilian movie that follows the story of Orpheus's journey to the underworld. 
right? Rilke wrote these incredible poems to Orpheus. And the reason Orpheus reappears, as um, Anne Rowe, who wrote the phenomenal book on Orpheus, uh, said to me when I interviewed her, is because he's the force of poetry itself. When we invoke Orpheus, we're invoking that life force, that life force of poetry. So that Orpheus, as a child, he used to sit in the grove and he used to play his seven-stringed lyre. And as he played his lyre, the trees would sway a little bit closer to him, right? And then the stones would start skipping. And then the rivers, the little creeks would respond with their voices. They, the water would leap a little bit higher. He did a whole body of work entirely to stones. And he sang separate songs to invoke the powers of each stone. So he has a whole body of work devoted to jasper, to agate, to all the different stones. And this body of work isn't like, here's a hymn in praise of Jasper or Agate. It's like the Deepak Rag. It is the force of the Agate, the Jasper. The song is the living force of the object itself. And it's received by someone who is attuned to that source of divine inspiration so that they understand the songs of the rocks and the trees and the creeks. I want to read a quick passage from Anne Rowe's book where Orpheus sings to the trees. And so he's high up on a mountain far above the sea in the Macedonian highlands in those fragrant woods. And it says, he sensed a rustling and creeping at his back. Shadows fell unexpectedly and a chaos of startled birds beat around him. His holy oaks, the most immovable of trees, anchored almost all the way down to Hades, were following him. One by one, they dragged up their roots, heaving the stony soil, throwing off the dirt. The stones, too, followed, skittering, singing. Their broad trunks quivered and grew limber like the bodies of stags. Music, his music, coursed through their branches like new sap, making the tooth leaves shake and shine under the sun. It flowed, swift as spirit, through the cells to their green core, along twisted sinews and down polished defiles of the wrenched out dancing wood. From root to bud, his music shivered and surged in them, like release. Their massed heads moved together, pressing forward, leaving behind only the dead with their mossy arms stretched out, wildly tangled in garlands and cloaks of green ivy, like half-dressed mourners abandoned in the street. He led them then, scarcely daring to turn in case they froze behind him, swaying and stumbling from rock to rock, their canopies full of sky and threshing wings, until they reached Zone on the Aegean Sea. There, in an open space, they arranged themselves in a double ring as though they meant to dance in a spiral, like the planets around the sun. But though he urged them to dance, though he challenged them, laughing and splashing, to follow him into the sea with their hundred hydra arms, they moved no more. Having staggered so far, astonished by the wide blue glare ahead of them, 
They felt the music finally leave them and rooted there. He could lead them only so far. That is still the case. So the singer, the bard, the poet wakes us up. Yeah, us trees, he wakes us up and shows us a glimpse of the sea, the sea of consciousness, perhaps, the sea of awakened consciousness. But then it's up to us to take the final step. They can't do it for us. The poets can't do it for us. All through the ages, the poets and the artists and the singers have showed us so much about how to live this life and view this world and the love to have in our hearts. And are we listening? Are we listening? That final, that final step is up to us to plunge into that sea. And Orpheus sang the entire length of his life until his death, when he had become a singer at the end who only sang in praise of the sun. Towards the end of Orpheus's life, he only sang in praise of Apollo, in praise of the sun. And the wild creatures of Dionysus, who he had previously honored, didn't like that so much. And so they dismembered him. They tore him apart. But they actually did us all a great service because as they dropped his head into the swiftly moving river, the head was still singing. As it traveled down the river, the head was still singing. And it traveled down all the way to the sea, his head and his lyre, right, his instrument, traveled all the way to the sea. And a little girl picked it up and she took it to a cave where it was enshrined on the island of Lesbos, there's a cave there. They installed his head in the cave, and for the next 1,500 years or so, the oracles at the cave received the poetic transmissions right from the head of Orpheus, and then sang to those who came visiting, those who came calling. And because his body was dismembered and the poetry went with the flow of the river, right, then it's available to all of us as this fountain, this flow of divine inspiration. Because it's said that some of the power of the song stayed in the water of the river. So maybe you've been out in a meadow. I just went up into the mountains today and there was a little creek bubbling. It's all swollen with the spring snow melt. And you can hear a lot in the voices of the water. You can hear a lot in the voices of the water. Still singing the song of Orpheus. So this vision of a being who is slain and the gift of poetry pours forth from their body is something that's also found in many places. The Norse myths speak of, there's a very long story in the Norse myths called the mead of poetry, right? The mead is like that honey, honey liquor, right? The mead of poetry. I don't yet know it well enough to tell the entire thing. You know, I, li I like to stick to stories that I feel like I know really well. 
so that as I tell them, maybe there can be a little bit of energy behind it. And if it's just more like reciting, then some of that energy gets lost. So I don't feel like I know that story well enough to tell it from start to finish. Um, but I will say that there's this kind of Orphic figure in the Norse myths named Kvasti, who also is slain. And the blood that pours from his body become, is mixed with honey and becomes the mead of poetry. And that vat is guarded by dwarves until it's not anymore. It's guarded by giants. It's kind of fought over in the god realm. And then finally, Odin, the shaman, the seer, assumes the form of a great eagle. And he bores his way into the mountain where the vats of poetry, the mead of poetry, are kept. And he drinks it all up out of the vats into his eagle form. And then he flies back to the land of the gods. And just the same way that birds feed their young, it gushes out of his mouth, out of his beak. The poets in the Norse traditions are said to have Odin's gift. They're said to have Odin's gift because it comes pouring out of the eagle's mouth. Except for a little bit that comes out the other end. And so if you ever hear like a really bad poet or a really bad musician, they say in the Norse traditions that they got the meat of poetry that came out of the eagle's ass. <laughs> so remember that the next time you hear a really bad song. But this vision again of the body of a divine being splitting apart and then what comes is the nectar of poetry is something that you'll find in many places on many continents in the world. And there is a story in the Amazon region of Brazil. There's a people, the Yahuna, and they speak of the origin of music. And they say that there was a boy who came from the land of the sun and he sang so beautifully, so beautifully. It was like the heavens themselves singing. And so a whole circle of people gathered to listen to him sing. The light of his song was so bright that it stayed with those people when they went back to their villages. Except the light of his song was so powerful that all the people who heard him died. They died after hearing his song because it was so pure. It was too bright. Humans couldn't handle it yet. Yeah. So the people of the village became very suspicious of this boy and they went and captured him and put him on a great pyre and burned his body because they saw him as responsible for killing their people. And as they burned his body, he kept his eyes directly on the sun and he sang the entire time the fire was burning. He sang the entire time the fire was burning. And he sang the sweetest song, and it was the sweetest song that anyone had ever heard. And the words of the song were, Now I die, now I die, now I die. Now I depart from this world. Now I am dead. And his body burst open, and he left a pile of ashes. And right from the ashes, a sprout grew. And the sprout grew bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, spreading out, fanning out until it became the Pashiuba palm tree, the great palm tree. And that palm tree is the tree from which those people make all of their instruments. So the unadulterated light of the divine takes form in the form of a tree 
sacrifices of itself and takes form in the form of a tree so that the people can have the gift of music as a way to find their way back to the divine. This vision of trees as the source of music is also something that you'll find in culture upon culture upon culture. So I'm at that temple in Vrindavan. It's like the trees are the story. Odin, the Norse god, again, he undertakes a great journey in which he ends up suspending himself from the world tree itself, fasting for nine days and nine nights so that he can have a vision. And what comes to him in his vision as he's hanging there upside down on the world tree are the runes, the sacred alphabet, which become the source of poetry. And if you want a very simple explanation for why in so many cultures, poetry and music come from trees, it's because we make instruments out of wood, right? That's one very simple explanation. And it's deeper to that than that too. I was hiking the other day and the, and the wind was blowing and the trees were creaking and there were voices in the woods. There was a, another Greek oracle, I'm forgetting um, where it was located exactly, but they used to put bronze canisters in the uh, hollow canisters, hang them in the trees, so that as the trees moved with the wind, they would hear the voices of prophecy. So where did the stories come from for them? It came from the wind in the trees. So, the bubbling stream carries Orpheus's head, and then the stream itself becomes a source of inspiration. And, and many cultures have this vision also, just like the mead of poetry, again, for the Norse people. Many cultures also have this vision of this, this liquid that is like pure poetry itself, right? This stream of liquid, this fountain of inspiration. And in the Celtic tradition, there's a wonderful story of Keridwen, who tends a cauldron. Carried when she's a, a goddess figure, and she had a daughter who was the most beautiful girl that the earth had ever known. And she had a son who was the ugliest boy that the earth had ever known. And she wanted to mitigate her uh, son's kind of vile appearance by making sure that he was endowed with gifts of intelligence and inspiration and prophecy. And so she made a concoction in her cauldron, a concoction of pure poetic inspiration. And there's a word for this pure liquid flowing inspiration in Old Celtic, and it's awen, liquid inspiration. And no, it's not, it's not talking about an actual you know, what sometimes they call like alcohol liquid courage, right? It's not talking about that. It's talking about a divine nectar, right? A state of consciousness, the divine nectar of poetic trance where we receive poetry, awen. And so she sets this cauldron bubbling and she puts a young boy to tend the cauldron. And the young boy's name is Guion. And she says, you have to tend the cauldron for a year and a day and keep stirring it nonstop. And at the end of that year and a day, then it'll be ready. And so he stands dutifully by the cauldron and 
stirs the cauldron of pure inspiration day after day after day after day after day after day. Oh yeah, and she said, don't let it bubble over. There's always a catch, right? Don't let it bubble over, whatever you do. And so uh, he's stirring He's stirring this cauldron of pure inspiration and suddenly he's one day away from being complete with his task. He's done it for a year and the flame rises, the cauldron bubbles up, three drops of pure inspiration fly out of the cauldron they hit him in his right thumb and he sticks his thumb in his mouth because of burning drops of pure inspiration. And as soon as he tastes the three drops of inspiration, he sees past, present, and future merge into one. The consciousness of the poet, right? Past, present, and future merge into one immediately in his mind. And he gains all the mystic powers that come from access to this deeper state of consciousness. And it's a good thing too, because the cauldron cracks, the pure inspiration floods out, it floods into the village. It's such concentrated stuff that anything beyond three drops is poison and the horses drink it and the horses die. And Caridwen, in a rage, chases after Guion, who goes running for his life. And with his new powers of consciousness, he shapeshifts and he transforms into a squirrel, I think it is, or some type of rodent, and and Caridwen right behind him transforms into a wolf and is on his tail, and they're running through the forest, and Caridwen is um, in the form of a wolf snarling and howling right behind him. And, and he's like, this is no good. Wherever I go, she's after me. But he sees a field of grain on the banks of the river, and he transforms himself into a morsel of corn, and he's like, oh, she'll never find me now. But she transforms herself into a giant hen and she goes stalking through the cornfield. She sees that one particular kernel and she swallows it. And Guion is devoured by the goddess. He's devoured by the goddess, but the goddess becomes pregnant. So when she resumes her mortal form again, she's with child. And she thinks to herself, as soon as this child is born, I'm going to kill him. But when he's born, he's so beautiful that she can't bring herself to kill him. He has an aura about him. He has a glow about his brow. So she gives him the name Taliesin, which means the shining brow. So Guion cooks the cauldron of inspiration. And this can be the artistic process, the meditative process, until the three drops allow him to merge all three times into one which is that state, the meditative state, the trance state, the, the artist state. And he's reborn then as a being with a shining brow, an illuminated consciousness. And he goes on to become the greatest bard in the land. And he sings the songs of Taliesin, which there's many, many works attributed to Taliesin. And many of the Arthurian legends, he's intertwined with the Arthurian legends as well. And he sings in the Arthurian legends it's a really rare story from the Arthurian legends. It's not in many of the books, but he sings of a great journey of King Arthur into a citadel. And in the center of the citadel is a pearl-rimmed cauldron of pure awen, pure poetic force. And Arthur has to go into that citadel, right? And he has to take the cauldron of Awen, a pure poetic force, the pearl-rimmed cauldron. 
the awakened consciousness. So the journey of the poet, the journey of the bard, the singer, right? It's to tread those spaces, to find those citadels, to find that bubbling cauldron of awen, of, of inspiration. And inspiration, you know, inspiration is kind of a, sometimes when you say these things in English, they don't quite carry the, the force to it, right? Because we have to remember that what's being talked about is the animate force of consciousness itself right? The ability through word and song to transport us all, to take us into another space, another time, another dimension, so that we might find presence, that place where the three times merge, and we might come back to the world with a little more clarity and coherence, ability to navigate uncertain times a little better, the ability to be present and loving, compassionate, take deep breaths, to give things time, to not get caught up in panic and anxiety. And all around us in this time, you know, when we're having to do a little bit of isolation, all around us, nature is singing to us. They said that at the cave of the Oracle of Orpheus, the cave on the island where his head was installed, that the nightingales sang more sweetly there than anywhere else in the world. I can hear the birds singing right outside. All the birds were waking up when I was out on the trail today. And so nature is all around us telling us there's something deeper. There's a song that's beyond the agitated voices in the head that are getting too caught up in the news. And right, there's something deeper. There's measurements of time that exist in the billions of years, not in the millions. There are forces greater than us, and what we can hope for in this life is to be a, a good a good vessel, right? As that other great bard, the sage Narada from India, composer of the Bhakti Sutras, as he said, love reveals itself where there is an able vessel. Love reveals itself where there is an able vessel. So our work is to become able vessels for love, even in challenging times, especially and challenging times, I would say. The, the universe in, in the Indian conceptions is infinitely creative. It, it, is, it is artistry itself. And just, you know, look at the cosmos, look at the ring nebula, look at the crab nebula, the horsehead nebula, you know, the, and the infinitesimal detail and the like tiny etchings in the human fingertips. Shakti, the universe, the power of nature is infinite creativity, is infinite creativity. And in certain Indian understandings, Shakti rejoices in the songs that are directed her way. So the divine consciousness is reinforced and reverberates with the power of poetry and song that is directed her way. Which is why when I was studying a particular text in Varanasi with a teacher named Mark Diskowski, it speaks about the goddess in the form of praise, meaning that praise isn't just a way that we kind of honor some abstract principle, that praise is the goddess herself. Praise is the force of nature, 
right? So praise is the force of nature, honoring nature. Consciousness reveling in itself, one could say, if that makes sense. But consciousness reveling in itself, divine creativity reveling in itself. You know, and you can see in the scintillant variations of nature, we can see this, we can see this at play. Some of the coral beings and fish that inhabit the shallow seas, all colors of the rainbow. And we can see this infinite creativity, which is seen in the Indian traditions as this divine play. The universe is the artist in a perpetual state of um, self-beholding and wonderment in this vision. The sense of divine wonder, which we, when we feel wonder and when we feel praise, so this state of awe, of wonder, is the natural state of nature of the divine, right? When we feel awe and wonder at the magnificence of nature, that force of awe and wonder is the divine itself. That's tapping into the stream of, of divine consciousness. Right. When we the the universe that exists in one of the tantric texts, it says, you know, in a state of spontaneous awe, beholding its own magnificence, beholding its own infinite creativity. You know, it's meant to be cosmic and it's meant to make us say, wow, and, and this kind of thing. But it's also meant to return us to a very simple truth, which is that we live in an infinite universe and that these forms are temporary. Right. But we live in a universe of infinite beauty. And so the challenges that we face, the challenges that human beings are passing through right now, yeah, they're challenges and we have to adapt and we have to adjust. And in the larger scope of the movement of this universe, it's something that's very, very small and we'll get through it. And even within the midst of it, there are opportunities, especially when we slow down, there are opportunities to experience this divine wonderment, this divine awe. So I hope you enjoyed these stories of the bards and the power of their song. If you liked what you heard today, please consider becoming a patron. You can find out more at patreon.com slash the Emerald Podcast. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the Emerald Podcast. There are patronage levels starting for as low as $6 per month, and patrons get a variety of benefits that are listed on the site. I hope you enjoy today's episode, and until next time, may we live lives that are driven forth by imagination, vision, and wonder. Mm-hmm.